<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. That... <laughs> Starting to record, recording now. Excellent. More than a woman. Okay. Oh shit. That shit is blinking and beeping. Okay, there. I have my things on. All right, we ready. Jesus. <laughs> Turn that so down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm What's supposed taking to start. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I legitimately just forgot that I'm supposed to start. That's ridiculous okay sorry i'll start now whoa welcome to talk movie to me a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen our weekend entertainment and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus i'm helen i'm miss sinclair and i'm edison and this week we are discussing pieces of a woman written by kata weber and directed by cornell mandruso and starring vanessa kirby in a very oscar buzz performance alongside shia labeouf ellen burston and molly parker Pieces of a Woman tells the story of Martha and Sean, that's Kirby and LaBeouf, as a couple who've decided to have a home birth. When it ends in unfathomable tragedy, Martha begins a year-long odyssey of mourning that fractures relationships with loved ones in this deeply personal story of a woman learning to live alongside her loss. Pieces of a Woman asks the question, when you experience a loss so traumatic and painful that it shatters your very soul, is there a right way to put the pieces back together? Mm-hmm. First impression, Helen. Okay, so I watched this on Saturday night, and I was having a night in. Well, obviously, every night is a night in. But, um, and I was going to order some food, and I've been craving fried chicken lately, which I've never craved fried chicken in my life. Mm-hmm. And I I ordered KFC. Oh. Filthy which I've and amazing. never yeah, done. <laughs> Like, we had KFC sometimes when I was a kid, but, like, I've never on my own ordered KFC. Mm. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to eat KFC and watch Pieces of a Woman. And I do not (laughs) recommend watching the first 30 minutes of this movie while you're trying to eat fried chicken. That's all I have to say. It's just... Or or anything. Or anything, really. But especially, like, a greasy, indulgent meal like that. It does not pair well with the first 30 minutes of this film. No. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Edison? My first impression is that the opening scene of this film, I think, does a really fantastic job of telling us all that we need to know. It's Sean at work at some, I don't, I don't know what it was, an industrial shipyard or something. And he's talking with his co-workers, talking about his daughter. The one who's not even born yet, one asks... Yeah, that one. How's Martha? Another asks. Martha's fine. She's always fine. It kind of shows how he sees his world and lays Mm. it down. And I just thought, okay, that's a really great intro. And then it cuts right to her 
being pregnant. I was like, okay. I just thought it was really effective. I wasn't invested in any way yet because nothing really happens right at the very beginning. But I thought it set it up really well. Sinclair? Okay, well, I watched this at 6 a.m. Oh, boy. (laughs) That's really odd. (laughs) Which is also not the right time to watch this movie. (laughs) Uh, No. I love when I messaged you and I was like, should I watch this in the afternoon or the evening? You were both like, evening. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, first impression for me, I've never seen Vanessa Kirby in anything before. Mm. So this is actually my first impression of her as well. And right off the bat, the film has a very gritty realism to it. Some of the lines feel improvised. Yeah, there is a really big scene that comes before the title of the movie, and it's a pretty uncomfortable, long labor scene. I kept getting the impulse to fast forward, (laughs) but I resisted. Mm. (laughs) I did not want to watch this birth (laughs) at Mm. all, but I got through it. Yeah, it was definitely a hard-hitting scene to start the film off, for sure. Yeah, okay. Shall we get into the storytelling? Sure, yeah. Let's talk about that opening scene, because... (laughs) As far as like storytelling, I thought that there's been birth scenes and labor scenes in countless films and TV shows. I have never seen it done like this before. No, me neither. It was one of the most, I don't know, harrowing and beautiful and terrifying scenes I like I think I've ever seen I was literally Mm -hmm. on the edge of my sofa like almost breathless watching this and it's funny because I didn't really know the plot of this film at all I actually to be honest I thought it was about abortion I didn't know Mm. what the context of the movie was but I knew that there was going to have to be something that went wrong so I had this sense of dread but then when the baby came out okay I was like oh god thank god well it's not that right so that lasted like all of three seconds yeah I loved this scene. I had no inclination to want to fast forward. I could have probably watched another 15 minutes of this, which is maybe weird of me. But I just loved that we were taken on this journey with Mm -hmm. these three characters. Her performance specifically in this section of the movie is so amazing because she's going through contractions. She's not going through contractions, but you are seeing specific things happen to her and to her body, right? And it's very in your face. The camera is just following everybody. We're not cutting. And I do think even if you knew nothing about the plot of this movie, I do think that it sets up in a dreading fashion. This doesn't feel like it's going to be a joyful birth. No, the tension is absolutely there. For me, in terms of general storytelling, I think that this film works best when it is serving its title pieces of a woman and it's examining martha vanessa kirby's character and the other women in this film seeing the relationship between martha and her mother played by ellen burston and then also the midwife played by molly parker seeing their stories and how they all respond not so much the midwife but how ellen burston and martha respond to the tragedy that happens in this film and, um, you know, a relationship between a mother and daughter. All of those things to me were interesting. That's what I wanted more of. I did not need anything to, to be completely honest about Shia LaBeouf's character. And every time we kept going back to him, it lost me personally. Yeah. So, well, full disclosure from me, I didn't like this film. <laughs> okay. Specifically, I didn't like this film as a whole. I thought Mm -hmm. this film has two very strong scenes. 
it has one kind of strong scene and I found the rest of the film to be really unfocused and mm. it felt a bit empty to be mm. honest I didn't like the lack of focus in this story I thought it wasted a lot of time on unnecessary character moments that took the focus away from Martha that was my biggest yeah. problem with this film Helen mm -hmm. so I agree with that because that's overall why I didn't really love this film there's a lot of stuff with Shia LaBeouf that I just didn't want to see that I didn't think yeah. furthered the story at all it felt muddled it felt frantic totally. and confusing and I also didn't like that they started the film off with him mm. yeah <laughs> the first shot of the film is him setting it up yeah setting it up and yeah. that just didn't work for me at all I also just felt like this movie was told through the wrong lens I felt like this should have been a female director the whole time I was watching it and you know it is written by a woman you know and they're a married couple so it's mm -hmm. obviously their project together and it is a personal story they suffered a miscarriage yeah yeah but at the same time I felt that it just should have been directed by a woman it's interesting because the writer she did she suffered a miscarriage and then she retreated to Berlin and started writing and she wrote this story and she has this quote talking about why she wrote this and she says I felt that my body had been taken away from me because there were all these people around expressing their opinions on the miscarriage my body wasn't mine I had to regain it back through writing which was like therapy for me and I love that idea but I I agree Sinclair that I feel like that was part of the story, but the story wasn't entirely focused there. And that's where it weakens for me. I think what they were trying to do with the Shia LaBeouf's character, Sean, making him an alcoholic and giving him addiction. It felt to me like they were trying to draw a parallel between grief and addiction. That part didn't actually sit that well with me. Me neither. It's like they kept asking, like, how do you help someone who's completely resistant to help? Like somebody has to go through this journey when they decide to, when they're ready. And that's the conversation that surrounds addiction. I agree with both of you. It wasn't necessary in this story. It just muddied it. Well, also, I, I mean, I didn't care about him and Sarah Snook's character, the lawyer Ugh, that he's having the affair that. with. I, I hated I, I that. I didn't think any of that was crucial to Not show. I hated that scene with him and Vanessa Kirby where he's forcing himself on I know. her mm. this is I know that's your bad. wife that is clearly depressed and grieving and I just really really hated that scene and these themes are important to tell like a woman who you know has a baby or who is pregnant every choice is scrutinized and mm -hmm. questioned and especially by you know their own mother a lot of the time so I think the Ellen Burstyn element of this film was really important to focus on a lot more they do have a good scene together mm -hmm. but they have that one scene together and I felt the majority of the Ellen Burstyn stuff was actually showing how Shia LaBeouf felt inferior to her when it should be how Martha feels inferior. We didn't get enough of Martha's history her and her relationships with, her with either of them. That's what I mean. So when yeah. we got to that scene with her and her mother, that was really powerful. I have to say, I feel that that was mostly really powerful because Ellen Burstyn was fucking incredible. But we don't know enough of their relationship history leading up to that and prior to this moment. Well, yeah. that's why I said there's two good scenes and then there's one kind of good scene because I thought the scene with Ellen Burstyn was kind of good. 
because of those reasons. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Right. I also thought, you know, there was a scene where they were all together at Martha's mother's house and, you know, her sister is there and Benny Safdie's there and <laughs> they're all sitting around and talking and they're doing a very long shot, which we'll get into more of the technical stuff in a bit, but they do a very long take where Martha's kind of walking around while a conversation is going on and it's Shia LaBeouf and it's Benny Safdie and they're talking about the white stripes and it's mm-hmm. this kind of right. idle chit chat. And I thought to myself, how pointless is that really? Yeah. They could be sitting around and the focus could be on Martha's mother and sister talking. And that's mm-hmm. the conversation she's overhearing. Something that's making her feel inferior to them or just something with them. I don't know why we needed a full conversation about the white stripes. It just, it felt too <laughs> film school. Right. We as audiences, we weren't allowed in her head as much as we should have been. Mm-hmm. Because those scenes were so unfocused. Mm. And then when you get to the trial scene, finally, we don't see the process that helps her come to that monumental decision. Mm. Really. We've been shut out like the characters in the film to her as well as audiences. And it just didn't work. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a bit baffling because I do think that that initial scene is so strong and I think her performance as a whole is so strong and then most other aspects of the movie kind of bring it down yeah and it's a shame <laughs> I agree it could completely be a home run it never it doesn't live up to the promise of that first 30 minutes yeah 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 okay well why don't we jump right into performances then because Vanessa Kirby's performance in this is Probably the reason why most people are seeing this film yeah. um, right off the bat, because it is very hyped. It, there's a lot of conversation about Oscar buzz. Mm-hmm. What did we think of her in this film? Well, I thought she was great. Uh, she was the best part of the movie for me, really, mm-hmm. even though I do feel that she just has those th- three strong scenes. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a lot to work with in terms of the mm-hmm. rest of the film, I thought. I would love to see her in something more consistent <laughs> in terms of story. But overall, I thought she was really great. She has this great deep voice. It holds a lot of depth and Mm. authority to it. She's definitely a more contained performer than Shia LaBeouf. So that was a very interesting... Dynamic, yes. Dynamic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We'll get into him. But uh, I did like her, yes. I mean, her performance is what drives this movie. I found her defiance to be very compelling. Mm Mm-hmm. In so many different aspects, but, you know, throughout the film, she is, she's being defiant to everyone basically telling her how she's supposed to be grieving. Uh, Yeah, I thought it was incredible. I thought it was so, so, so visceral, so committed. And I think throughout Mm. the whole film, like, yes, she had a couple of kind of bigger moments, bigger scenes. Right, where she got to come out of this inside focused, quietly kept in yeah. furious kind of grieving. And those moments where she was uh, emoting more were powerful. But I also did really, really enjoy her for all of it. Yeah. All right. What about Shia? <laughs> oh, I'll start. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I think that with everything that has come out about him being Mm -hmm. abusive as a person it was really Mm -hmm. hard to watch him in this because his character is also very abusive and it doesn't seem like acting to me it was just a little too (laughs) close to home a little too believable manipulative 
manipulative and his character is already kind of shitty in this shia's reputation doesn't really help us empathize with a character who is no. already being presented to us as a bad person mm-hmm. he's also just so frantic in this and mm-hmm. self-serving and there was no i didn't feel like there was any sort of element of grief to, to this performance for all the attention that his character was getting in this film i didn't mm. actually feel a real portrayal of a sense of loss it was like immediate anger it just gave me anxiety like watching him i just i couldn't imagine being around that kind of frantic energy I could argue that that is actually effective. This is a character who is established as being an addict in this film. And everyone is reminding him, right, as soon as this happens, like, this is, could, can you imagine a more triggering event? Right, but mm. we're just seeing him as Shia. We're not seeing him as the character. So that's why it didn't work, because we're just, we're just seeing Shia LaBeouf. That was, that was my problem. I wasn't putting that on the character at all. I was seeing someone who does have a reputation of being a very emotional actor, a bit of a loose cannon that has definitely worked before in the past, but now it's become too erratic and and rooted in the chaos of his real life. You know, it's just too close to home that you attach it to him, not the character. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if we would view it that way, though, if these allegations hadn't just come out. No, I agree. I wonder, like, what if we had seen this right after we saw Peanut Butter Falcon, for example, Mm. which I feel like when we saw that film, it really got Shia a lot of of goodwill, right? Like, we were really into him and loving him and hoping for him there. Yeah, I mean, I've loved him in the past. I didn't like this performance, and I don't respect him as an actor or a human being at this point anymore. And I don't think he's going to work anymore, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm. Can we talk about Ellen Burstyn? Uh, Yes, absolutely. That one scene when she has her big monologue, right? That's Mm -hmm. her, that's her moment for a lot of the rest of the film. She's certainly amazing, but it's like, there's not a lot of variety, Yeah. but the camera doesn't leave her face for Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. a full minute, maybe even slightly more than that. She is absolutely riveting in that moment. I was so moved by this woman who I also kind of feel like the film doesn't earn that monologue almost like. Yeah, that's also why I felt this was only kind of a good scene because I hated the writing in this scene. Her acting was way better than what she was saying. Yes. Yeah. And that's a testament to her acting. (laughs) It truly, truly is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we get into the technical aspects of the film? Well, we kind of have already touched on it in the previous mm. conversations a little bit. Some of the choices with cinematography and with these shots, right? Like that first 30 minutes, we have a really incredible 20-minute like single shot, which I thought was really inventive and, and effective. Impressive um, filmmaking, but yeah. for sure. Yes. Okay, just in terms of technical as well, just two tiny little moments. During the labor scene, they use this Seagull Ross track, mm. and... Uh, it fully brought me back to this moment of unrequited love in, when I was like 19 or 20. And it was it was just like really triggering and crazy. I haven't heard that song since. And then one other thing is small little gripe, but honestly, it drove me completely batshit crazy in this film. <laughs> right after the beginning, like moment after that scene, it cuts to, you know, after the title, the title. And it says yeah. October 9th at the top. Mm. I hated that so much as if the audience is going to remember when the fuck the first scene took place. I had to literally pause 
yeah. scroll back and check and see September 17th. Like, why not just say three weeks later? That drove me insane. I had to keep tabs on it. Like, no one would remember. If you saw this in the theater, you'd be like, what does October 9th mean in the context of this story? Oh, I didn't even, I didn't even read them. Oh, I, I, I remembered September 17th and October 8th. Well, I don't know what to say about that. It's coupled with, it just means I'm very perceptive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's coupled with these reoccurring shots of this bridge as we see this bridge being built, which was like, okay, if you're going to show us the bridge being built, you don't need to show that and dates. Like, or like build get bridges? It. Time is passing. Yeah, no, that, that symbolism was very overt, as was the apple seed symbolism. Like, I'm like, okay, yeah, life can go on. We get it. The last scene was so yeah. lame. I'm yeah. so sorry. Very lame. So lame. Very, they very did not, lame. The film really did not need that. No. <laughs> Okay, Okay. well. (laughs) We tried to end on a positive note, but we couldn't. (laughs) It quickly went negative. (laughs) All right, what is the last word on Pieces of a Woman, Helen? Pieces of a Woman is not an easy watch. My barometer for it would probably be something like Manchester by the Sea. If you were able to watch Mm. that and like survive you can probably watch this i almost didn't survive manchester by the sea so i don't know what that says but yeah i mean it's worth a watch for the performances and for that first scene in my opinion edison i agree i think this film is is worth watching for the performances just to even think like it does cause you to kind of think Mm -hmm, for sure after about what this might be like and imagining that experience it's worth it for the first scene unfortunately the film never lives up to it again Mm -hmm. how about you Sinclair last word for me overall I didn't like this film as a whole but I I did really like Vanessa Kirby in this I think she did a really great job with what she had to work with and I think this is worth watching for her if you're interested Mm -hmm. in seeing the buzzworthy performances of the year before award season Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Each week, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. This week's theme is Till Death Do Us Part. This is our week in entertainment. All right, y'all. Can't wait to hear what you picked, Helen. You go first. Tell us about it. Okay. I rewatched a film from 2010 entitled Blue Valentine. Directed by Derek C. in France, starring Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling. Blue Valentine shows us the relationship between Cindy and Dean, a couple whose marriage is on the brink. We see how they begin, how they become a somewhat unconventional family of three, and how they end. This movie came out when I was in my second year at acting school, and it was one of those films, there was a few that came out in those years that I was there, where the acting was at a certain caliber that everyone at school was like, you have to see this movie. And if you don't, you're not a real actor. Of course. That's the most acting school movie I can imagine to come out at that time. Yeah. It also has a lot of scenes in New York City. So watching this again, I got very nostalgic. The most interesting thing about watching it recently is that I saw it very differently this time. How I remember it from my first watch is that it's a marriage falling apart The acting is incredible, and there's, like, some element of alcoholism. This time watching it, all I could notice was everything that's happening to Michelle Williams and Mm. how all of the men in her life are awful (laughs) to her. Mm -hmm. It was a tough pairing with Pieces of a Woman. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of similarities. 
between the two films. And maybe that's why I was seeing it with such a female perspective. You know, she her father is verbally and probably physically abusive towards her mother. When we see this really uncomfortable scene where she's having sex with the man who ends up being the biological father of her daughter and he doesn't pull out and then she starts freaking out because she knows that she's pregnant. Her marriage to Dean is seemingly quite bad. It's crumbling and he takes them to this tacky themed motel and they get drunk and he tries to have sex with her. And that scene of him trying to have sex with her reminded me so much of the Shia scene in Pieces of a Woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then she has a boss who propositions her essentially and at first she thinks it's because he's asking her to take this job opportunity because she's good at her job and then she realizes he's just coming on to her and there's just so many instances of men just being so awful to her and I didn't see that the first time I watched it like I really mm-hmm. saw it as more of an equal marriage story and it really isn't so that was interesting and it's something I just love so much about movies in general is that you can experience movies differently. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At the different times in your life that you watch them. The performances are incredible in this film. Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling are wonderful. The character that he plays, it would take someone as affable and charming as Ryan Gosling to pull it off because that character isn't very likable and sort of in a different way as how we were talking about Shia in the previous segment but he makes the character Mm -hmm. he does make the character likable and it makes him have heart and fitting into the till death do us part theme the last scene of this film is Ryan Gosling making this desperate plea to Michelle Williams to not break up their marriage and he says Mm -hmm. you know you made me a promise for better or worse and this is me at my Mm -hmm. worst you made me a promise and Unfortunately, it's not going to be till death do us part for these two because it's it just can't survive. But I mean, this movie's incredible. The acting is phenomenal. And I recommend I do recommend watching it. It's currently on Amazon Prime in Canada. Yeah. And I mean, that can be a very toxic vow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. When you're in the wrong relationship. Absolutely. Trying to live up to that vow yeah you know it just doesn't work in every situation yeah. you know it shouldn't be no <laughs> till, no till death do you part if it's toxic yeah right right who's next okay edison all right um so <laughs> so my film this week is enter the void from 2009 mm-hmm. directed by <laughs> um auteur filmmaker gaspar noe enter the void tells the story of oscar played by nathaniel brown a young American guy living in Tokyo who becomes a drug dealer to save up enough money to move his sister, Linda, played by Paz de la Huerta, mm. from America to join him. They were orphaned as young kids when their parents died in a car crash, a moment which we see ex- in explicit harrowing detail over oh, wow. and over and over again throughout this film. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen this. Uh, sorry, Edison, I kind of chuckled when you said you were watching this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean it because it's definitely an experience. Lord, it's that. So yeah, anyway, Linda arrives in Tokyo. We see they have a real fucked up relationship. Super codependent and definitely verging on incestuous. (laughs) He gets her hooked on drugs too. And then it's all a bit of a spiral into like debauchery and drugged out chaos. (laughs) About a third of the way into the film, we're actually... Honestly, it's difficult to tell because this film is just so out there that, like, what even is time? (laughs) Our guy Oscar gets shot 
in a deeply grim washroom and uh, dies. But in this case, death doesn't do us part because <laughs> his soul leaves his dead body. And then the rest of the film is him kind of flickering between observing memories from his past and watching his sister and friends in Tokyo devolve into junkie hell. So, yeah, this film is fucked. Very uplifting, total acid trip realness. You have seen this, obviously, Sinclair. Yes. What did you think of it? Well, I was exhausted right after the opening title sequence. Well, this is not a film that you can watch if you have epilepsy. You'll be instantaneously <laughs> just, having a seizure like techno on the floor. Flashing. Oh, it's so like much that. right off the the get go. It's definitely one of those movies that you, you want you want to see it. It's talked about a lot. You want to know what the big deal is. But it was mainly for the POV stuff that intrigued me mostly. I think that's fair. Like there were elements of this film that. I absolutely loved, actually, and it and kind of blew my mind. Like, until Oscar dies, it's shot in this first-person perspective, literally through mm-hmm. his eyes, even with mm-hmm. blinking, as if oh, he's wow. got cameras yeah. as contact lenses. Yeah. That's really neat. Mm. And then he dies, and we no longer see through his eyes, but kind of behind him, through this sort of disembodied perspective while he's observing his past and what like would have been his present. You never see his face in this film unless he's looking in a mirror. Um, so you're with this character throughout the whole thing. It's really audacious and inventive filmmaking. It's mm, yeah. very exciting for a while. The <laughs> cinematography is really incredible. The visuals and the color saturation, it's just all a lot. Like It is meant to evoke being in a drug-induced state. They're all just high all the time on everything. And you watch this and you really feel like, I don't even take drugs. And I literally was on my couch. I was like, I need water. Do I need somebody to check on me? Like, what is happening? So because Oscar is our protagonist, but because we never see him, we only see what he sees, really Mm. Paz de la Huerta is the star, right? And we only really Hmm. see her through her brother's, like, lascivious eyes. She's riveting in this. Hmm. She's, like, kind of breathy, totally out of it. It's such a believable performance. I'm not convinced that she wasn't actually just stoned out of her mind for this Mm. entire thing. Oh, yeah, I think so, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, though, the novelty of the, like, visual originality does wear off. These, like, scene transition shots that are really inventive at first and the shots where we're seeing from Oscar's perspective as he, like, flies over buildings Mm. and through walls. So cool at first, Mm. but fully tedious after a while. Mm. It's just excessive. It all becomes a blur. Mm. It just becomes a blur, yeah. It becomes a blur. (laughs) It loses any meaning. Watching this film is the equivalent of listening to Christina Aguilera saying, have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. (laughs) It's just... The absolute uh, most. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> this film is two hours and 40 minutes long. No. It's way too long. A full <laughs> hour could have been cut. No. I'm sorry, Edison. I This is why I laughed. You, <laughs> I knew what you were getting yourself into, and I just had wow. to have a little chuckle. <laughs> But I will say, like, I still am glad I watched it. And totally, I still think it's yeah. worth watching. Mm. Yeah. And I think that if somebody could, if if somebody, if he would allow someone to edit an hour out mm. of this, there's a really incredible film in here. That's interesting. Um, that you could really get on board with. But this is a slog. Drugged <laughs> up. Felt like three days. But still worth watching. So, yeah, that was mine. Enter the Void. 
<laughs> I don't. I'll probably uh, I never think I'm watch still this. High. <laughs> yeah. It's not for everyone. Yeah. So Claire, what did you pick? Okay, I had not seen a more hmm. from 2012, directed by Michael Haneke. Oh yes. Amor stars Jean-Louis Tritignon, Emmanuel Riva, and Isabel Huppert. Here's a quick synopsis on IMDb if you haven't seen Amor. Georges and Anne are an octogenarian couple. One day Anne has a stroke and the couple's bond of love is severely tested. So Amor won the Palme d'Or at Cannes and it also won Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars in 2013. Mm -hmm. A while back, I went through a phase where I watched all of Michael Haneke's filmography, which was mm. definitely an experience, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. Mm. But I did not watch Amour. So despite being able to sit through some of his like most fucked up films, yeah. I couldn't actually fathom watching a film about an old couple coming to the end of their lives together. Well, like, that is the most fucked up thing for you. Yeah. Yeah, because my emotional kryptonite is the elderly and animals. Mm -hmm. So I've always wanted to watch this movie. I just could not bring myself Mm -hmm. to do it. And I thought, you know what? The theme this week, this is it. I'm going to watch it more. And I got to say, I really liked this film. Mm -hmm. It broke me, for sure, Mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a film that most people would look forward to watching. I don't think it's easy to sit and be reminded that humans grow old and we die. Frail and shit happens to us and then we die. Yeah. Yes. And it's the idea that you spend your life with someone and you love them unconditionally and you'll you you will lose them someday Mm -hmm. after sharing an entire life together. And that's what this story is is about Mm. so i thought this movie was great for a lot of different reasons one was the performances Mm. they were amazing Mm -hmm. yes emmanuel riva was nominated for leading actress at the oscars in 2013 and she was 85 Mm -hmm. years old and she was the oldest actress nominated for an oscar that's amazing in the leading actress category yeah And she actually passed away at the age of 89. So this performance is particularly haunting because Mm -hmm. it is somebody who is actually nearing the end of their life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These characters feel so lived in when you watch this film. You believe that they've been together for so long. You believe that they've loved each other and they've had their ups and downs and that they know each other inside and out. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very convincing performance from both of them. Anne has a stroke in the film. The way this happens is very interesting. It's not a big dramatic scene. They are both going about their day-to-day life. They're sitting at the kitchen table and suddenly she just isn't there mentally mm-hmm. anymore. She just looks oh, catatonic. She's unresponsive. You know, a few minutes go by and she's back and doesn't know what happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they find out she does have a condition. It will only worsen. It can't be treated. Thus begins George caring for her mm-hmm. in, in this state. I also just thought the portrayal of Anne just losing her independence mm-hmm. and grappling with her own death. And then George dealing with losing the person he loves, but also being very overwhelmed by caring for the person he loves. Mm-hmm. And Anne feeling guilty about that. George tries to say to her, it was going to be one of them, right? He, he's right. saying, it could have been me that this happened to first. And that 
comes with the territory True. of committing your life to someone. Yeah. This film is about aging and, and the fact that we die, yes, but it's really about caring for the person that you love until death do you part mm -hmm. basically this is what that vow is <laughs> this movie mm -hmm. it's got to be michael haneke's most tender film it's really intimate he's a director who's very unapologetic about making audiences really uncomfortable with yeah. his films mm -hmm. but this film is uncomfortable in a different way it is very balanced it doesn't end up being completely grim because there's so many moments of tenderness and um these characters being very gentle to each other mm. as well. I also just love the title Amour. It's yeah. this really simple title, love. Yeah. It just means so many different things. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, in a relationship and a marriage that spans over a decade, that word develops and it changes and it begins to mean so much more. Mm -hmm. Amour. It's, it's a tough watch, but it is a good film. I can see why it won. Yeah. And I'm glad I finally watched it <laughs> and got through <laughs> yes. it. Because it, it. It is a really wonderful film at the end of the day. So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. So join us while we wax our legs, put on a blonde wig, kiss our own mothers and slide into a sexy toga because nothing says ancient Greece more than this Jameson drinking, lady killing Irish bad boy. This Hollywood daredevil beguiled the film industry in the early 2000s, but a reputation of having more than a few Miami vices and not always being the gentleman people thought he should be was a slow and public killing of his sacred career. <laughs> Luckily, the charm and talent of this lovable rascal brought him back into all of our crazy hearts. And if there are still some naysayers, we are happy to report they are in the minority. Who wouldn't love to yes. curl up by the fire with this sensitive bad boy, call room service and order the lobster, and then, well... <laughs> We'll leave that up to your Imaginarium. So hold on to your early 2000s pop princess because it's time to put the yes. career of Colin Farrell in focus. Yeah, That was wonderful. So good. So we broke Colin Farrell's career down into his most defining moments and movies and we had to decide what the movie was that put him on the map. So really, Colin Farrell's Hollywood break was when Joel Schumacher cast him in Tigerland, and that was in 2000. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. here's a quick synopsis via IMDb, just in case you haven't seen Tigerland. A group of recruits go through advanced infantry training at Fort Polk, Louisiana's infamous Tigerland, last stop before Vietnam for tens of thousands of young men in 1971. I had not seen Tigerland. I did not watch I hadn't it either. in 2000 at all. So this was a first for me. Let me just say, like, neither did anyone. Like, to be <laughs> frank, this film was actually an astonishing box office flop. It grossed, huh. are you ready for this? $148,000 worldwide at the box office. How did that happen? Yeah. Just was a complete disaster for a Joel Schumacher film. Well, I'm sure that him directing Batman and Robin just a couple years earlier. Yeah, but that film still made millions, not 148,000. Well, wow. you know, it was uh, good for Colin Farrell's career, at least. Yes. One thing I did notice about this film is it does have a very grainy 70s look to it. 
it's a bit of a throwback to that time but i did laugh because although this movie has a 70s look this movie could not be more early 2000s <laughs> really when you couldn't. watch it as soon as cole hauser popped up i was like hello early 2000s <laughs> yeah i know i don't know i didn't love this i felt like it was an interesting story, but the color palette combined with just extensive amounts of scenes of yelling and characters wrestling each other, it, it grew, grew I grew tired Ooh, pretty quick. Showing. Yeah. Um, Edison Perkins. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I also didn't love this movie. It was like whatever, <laughs> right? Very like blah. But Colin Farrell is perfect for this. I can see why this was a star-making role. Mm -hmm. He's so, so incredibly handsome. So hot. He's so hot in this, yes. Oh my God, it's (laughs) insane. And this film is where he cemented his archetype. Bad boy with a heart of gold. The reluctant hero. That is his archetype as a star that he lived out in his personal life as well. But like this was cemented in his first big film that gave his break. There's that one scene when one of the other guys is giving a speech when they're peeling potatoes. And Colin freaks out because he's feeling something and might actually even be moved Mm -hmm. to show some vulnerability and let down his tough guy mask. But it's really great acting. He's dancing along this line between like being on the verge of tears and exploding with anger. Mm -hmm. And we don't know which way he's going to go as an audience watching this. There's this tension and unpredictability to this moment in his performance that I think is super captivating and really difficult to pull off. Yeah. And no one was super familiar with him at the time, too. So it makes it even more exciting to watch him. He has this... Yeah, that quality to him where he has this rebellious attitude, but there's also an, an empathy. You watch him and you're like, oh, you're a rugged bad boy, but you have a poet's soul. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Colin 100%. Farrell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This was a, a, a big film for him in, in terms of that. And you can see how he just exploded into his career. His career got really, really intense in mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Like he was in everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, one little, th- one last thing I'll say about Tigerland is you can see his audition videos on YouTube for this role. Um, this is way before Colin Farrell's famous, and they're actually really cool to watch. He's trying to do this Texan accent, and it's terrible, but <laughs> he has all of the charisma in the world, yeah, and all of the attitude for this. It's like, yeah, this guy's a star. Mm. It just you see it. Yeah, his charisma <laughs> definitely helps hide some of the accent stuff sometimes. Oh yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, we had to decide on Colin Farrell's big three, the three films that we think define his career. And Edison, why don't you start us off with number one? Sure. So first up on the big three is another Joel Schumacher film. This one is 2003's Phone Booth with Colin Farrell in the starring role and with Forrest Whitaker, Katie Holmes, Radha Mitchell, and another Schumacher favorite, Kiefer Sutherland, rounding out the cast. Mm. So in Phone Booth, Colin Farrell plays this sort of slimy publicist living in New York who basically gets held hostage at a phone booth near Times Square by a man on the other end of the line who seems to know everything about him and who threatens to kill him if he leaves the booth. We know this baddie means business when he shoots a pimp who's pissed at Colin for occupying the phone booth that his sex workers need to use to call their johns. (laughs) Eventually, the cops arrive, so does the wife and the mistress, and it's a whole big thing. But anyway, this movie is actually quite good. I remember liking this in 2003. 
Huh. I mean, Helen, it's not like, you know, a classic or anything, but it's better than I expected. I did watch it at a sleepover when I was like 12 or whatever, and I remember not liking it, but maybe maybe I need to give it a rewatch. And Colin Farrell is perfect. He really does have that type of like magnetism and charisma to carry a film. Mm. Even though he does look a bit like a limp biscuit groupie with his awful hair and positively unforgivable <laughs> goatee. Early 2000s. A lot of Can we talk about that? Stuff. Yeah, I I know. The late 90s and early 2000s were brutal so times brutal. for guys' hair. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It is super dated, phone booth. Like it opens on the streets of New York. Every single person is talking into their flip phones with this <laughs> with with this precious bit of voiceover narration. <clears throat> New York City is a city of 12 million people. Three million are cell phone users. Seeing people talk to themselves used to be a sign of insanity. Now it's a measure of status. <laughs> I died. Wow. I just died. Also such an unremarkable title for a film, too. Phone, Phone booth. booth. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't. <laughs> I will say, it, what, this was a respectable hit at the, at the box office. It was made on a very small budget, just $13 million. And it made just under $100 million at the box office. But this is the film where he was first tested as a leading man, and he pulled it off. So it's a really great one for his big three. What's next on the big three? I just, sorry, I just looked up a photo. That goatee is really, really bad. Unforgivable. Like, he's an attractive man, and he does not look attractive. No, I know. That is, it's a bad look. It wasn't a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so speaking of not a good time, that brings us to our second movie. (laughs) Of the big three. You know, we talk about the big three guys, and for the majority of the time, they're good. For Uh Colin Farrell, for his big three, we actually went with one that was universally panned. But it's Uh hard to deny that it's not one of his big three because it is so memorable in so many ways. Yes. (laughs) That film is Alexander from 2004, directed by Oliver Stone. Quick synopsis via IMDb. Alexander, the king of Macedonia and one of the greatest army leaders in the history of warfare, conquers much of the known world. However, this film didn't conquer the world of cinema. That's for damn sure. Hey, <laughs> Imagine that's actually in the IMDb description. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, okay. Edison told me that I cannot go on and on about Alexander, but I have a no, lot you have to two say minutes. because I only have two minutes to talk about Alexander. There's just so much. Okay. Wig. So. Yes, I've kind of just broken it down. One thing I do want to say is that I did watch this for the first time in 2021. I did not watch this in 2004 because everyone was saying it was so bad. So a part of me thought, okay, if I didn't know it was bad, would mm-hmm. I still think it was bad? Uh-huh. And? The answer is yes, it is bad. I would yeah. <laughs> I did think it was bad. For sure. And for a lot of reasons. Really, the biggest offense is the accent. Colin Mm. Farrell has an Irish accent in this and a very strong one. Yes. Yeah, but so did Alexander the Great, Sinclair. Duh. This film is so historically accurate. Yeah, right. The Irish (laughs) accent is just definitely pushing it for sure. And the accents in general all over the place. I don't know about Angelina's... Angelina's oh, no, accent. I'm not going to get into the Jolie <laughs> debate. <laughs> 
hers was a mixture of things there was some scottish accents some british accents there was just a lot going on in terms of that also the wig you don't very, think a wig would be special. that much of a deal breaker but it definitely is in this mm. it also gets bigger throughout the film at one point mm. it's a mullet <laughs> At another point, it's full David Bowie in Labyrinth, very Goblin King. It becomes like very <laughs> 80s hair metal. It's very, very Tina Turner. We don't need another hero. So, so <laughs> Tina Turner. Yeah, this was supposed to be a huge film for Colin Farrell. It's had all the right ingredients. It's a epic. It has Oliver Stone as the director. It has Angelina Jolie. It has Anthony Hopkins. But... No, it's definitely not a good film. It was a huge box office bomb. And he actually went into a bit of a depression after this this movie and mm. wanted to quit acting because he was mm. so frustrated mm. by the experience. But he does joke about it now, which is really great. There's some fun interviews where he talks about his performance in Alexander and he pokes fun at it. And yeah, he's just super cool about it now. He's always been a fun interview. I have to, I still maintain that if, Alexander had had a hot sex scene with, with Jared Leto. Yes. Yeah. Um, then it would have made it all good. <laughs> there was a moment I thought they mm. were going to kiss and yeah. they mm-hmm. didn't. And I was very upset. That I mean, that's what this movie needed. I mean, we're sitting through the Irish accent and the bad wig. Like, at least let us see Jared Leto and Colin Farrell kiss. Yes. Anyway. Okay, Helen, what's number three? Yeah, I'm gonna turn it around for Colin. All right, I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna talk about something that's fantastic, and that is in Bruges from 2008, written and directed oh, by Martin McDonough. I'm so <laughs> glad you liked this. I'd seen it before. This was not oh, the first time seeing that. it. Although, I well, I'll get into it. So here is the description, courtesy of IMDb. Guilt-stricken after a job gone wrong, hitman Ray and his partner await orders from their ruthless boss in Bruges, Belgium, the last place in the world Ray wants to be. So yes, I watched this ages ago. I have a feeling I must have been texting while I was watching. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention because I remember knowing it was good, but not appreciating it for whatever Mm. reason. And Mm. I am so glad that I had to watch it for this segment because this is a wonderful movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is so good. This script is perfectly crafted. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, as it should be, because this script is amazing. This is a dark comedy, and boy, is it dark, and boy, is it funny. <laughs> I <laughs> laughed out loud so many times during this. It's absolutely in part due to the writing, but so much of it depends on the performances by Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, who are two leads. They're wonderful. Colin has this boyishness about him and this vulnerability, which is such an entertaining contradiction to this hitman persona. (laughs) Bad boy with a golden heart. This is him. Uh, Yeah, yeah. He also has this ignorance and naivete that's, a great compliment to Brendan Gleeson's character who's wise and cultured. Mm-hmm. Also, Colin Farrell says some really awful, not politically correct things in this movie that, you know, the fact that he can deliver some of these lines that he delivers in this film and you don't hate him is a testament to the complexity of this performance and how well-written the script is. Yeah, I absolutely adored this. I'm so, so glad that I had to give it another watch. Mm -hmm. And it really does showcase the 
performer that Colin Farrell is and all of that charm but emotional depth as well like he has quite a few emotional scenes in this movie that are incredibly compelling and real and genuine and yeah it's great it's a great movie this is the milestone for sure this Mm -hmm. is where his career goes in a a good direction yeah Yeah, because he was basically doing a ton of action films in Bruges really switched that over for him then he started doing things like crazy heart and the lobster Mm -hmm. killing of a sacred deer and it was just a really cool direction that that this film allowed for okay sinclair what is colin farrell's hidden gem well i watched a very whimsical movie called Mm. ondine from 2009 directed by neil jordan this is a film that was shot in ireland Colin has his full Irish accent mm-hmm. in this in all its its glory mm-hmm. and he plays this fisherman who finds a woman tangled in his fishing net. She's a very mysterious woman. She doesn't tell him much about herself or how She's she ended alive? up there. She's alive. Huh. Yeah, and she says her name is Ondine, which in Latin means little wave and Aww. it's a name that's associated with the sea. He has this daughter who's very precocious. She's a girl named Annie. She's in a wheelchair. She has a kidney disease. She's just so cute and and smart Mm. and lovely. And she becomes convinced that Ondine is a Selkie. Mm, Like a mermaid, right? Well, I went down a rabbit hole of Ah! looking up what a Selkie was. And I kind of remember this folklore It's Mm. a creature in Celtic mythology that is a seal person that can shed their seal skin and become human. Whoa, that's so cool. And if a Selkie woman's seal skin is taken by a human man, she has to marry him and remain on land. But she'll always long for the sea. But Mm. yeah, I guess a human man can like steal their Selkie skin and hide it and they have to get married or something like that anyway Mm -hmm. this movie is actually a little bit more romantic than that Um, (laughs) a romance does blossom between Colin Farrell's character and Ondine yeah it was it's lovely it was atmospheric it was whimsical it's a bit haunting too it's not a perfect film but it was definitely an enjoyable watch and there actually was a little romance between Colin Farrell and the actress who played Ondine Alicia Buckleda they really hit it off on set and they ended up having a child together. So he stole her seal skin and then yeah, she had to have a child. <laughs> 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 but yeah, this is definitely a Edison watch. I oh. feel like mm. it's very coastal. I saw this movie mm. when it came out and I loved it. I really did. I had actually forgotten about it until this very moment when you mentioned it. But yeah, I really did enjoy it. Yeah. Okay, Edison, what is Colin Farrell's pop culture moment? Okay, so earlier and throughout this episode, we have been talking about that like film star archetype, right? That Colin Farrell fits so well, that bad boy with a heart of gold thing. Well, it's the bad boy portion of that, which gives us his pop culture. Mm-hmm. Particularly in the early part of his career, that early to mid 2000s, Colin was a notorious Hollywood bad boy and womanizer woman. You're a womanizer, baby. You, you, you are. You, you, you are. And yeah. yes, I mean, he did date Britney Spears. So 
<laughs> or at least they were sleeping together. Yeah, that was like, I remember that that was such a big thing. And they went to that premiere together. And it's all everybody was talking about. Everybody just played that up so much. Mm-hmm. They both did too. You know it. Yeah. But around this time, he was also romantically, or at least lustily, uh, linked to a whole host of famous women. From Lindsay Lohan, Playboy Playmates, to Angelina Jolie. (laughs) He had a sex tape in 2006. It was a whole thing. But the partying and like drug addiction started to get out of control, as it tends to. And Mm -hmm. Colin once talked about going to the Miami Vice premiere. Mm-hmm. And when he was watching the movie, he had no recollection of several scenes from the film. Whoa. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so immediately after the premiere, while the rest of the cast went to the like rap party, Colin was actually put onto a plane and sent directly to rehab. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it was like dark times there for a chunk yeah. of mm-hmm. the early 2000s, right? He was living the image that he had also sold as his thing. Um, Now he's been sober for years and that image is behind him largely. So he's taken on a slightly different but equally classic archetype. And that is the reformed bad boy with the heart of gold. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, All right, Helen, what's up and coming for Colin? Couple projects up and coming. One highly talked about the Batman. Robert Pattinson. Mm-hmm. He's playing Oswald Cobblepot, a.k.a. the Penguin. Interesting. I, for- I completely forgot, and he is utterly unre- unrecognizable. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, listen, I don't like comic book movies, really. Not my thing, but freaking love Robert Pattinson. Mm-hmm. And I really like Colin Farrell, so I am. I will see this when it comes out. Mm-hmm. And then the other one that I'm really excited about, which I actually discovered when I was researching about in Bruges, because this is Martin McDonough's next project mm-hmm. that he's written and is and is directing. It does not have a title yet. However, it is starring Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. Oh, amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the description is, a pair of lifelong friends on a remote Irish island find themselves at an awkward time in their relationship when one of them no longer wants to be friends. Mm-hmm. Oh, that I love that. Yeah, they have such good chemistry in In Bruges. Yes. And so I'm very excited about this. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, there's only one way to end this in focus, Colin Farrell, and that's by playing a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill mm-hmm. with his filmography. <laughs> okay, Edison, why don't you start us off? What film do you want to marry? I'm going to marry A Home at the End of the World from 2004. His, no, his hair. His hair. Uh, the hair is atrocious, <laughs> sure. But again, you know, you just have, it's the early 2000s, but... In this sweet movie, Sinclair, he plays this like very young guy trying to come to terms with the gay feelings he's feeling towards his friend. Aww. It was very much reflecting what was happening in my life at the time. Yeah. Um, so this will always hold a special place in my heart. And it's he's really tender and beautiful in this. Okay, Helen, what are you going to marry? I'm going to marry Crazy Heart. Mm. Mm, that makes sense. That yeah. Yeah, this actually, to refer back to a previous conversation point, this was another one that came out when I was in acting school and our acting teacher specifically told us to go and see this movie. And Mm -hmm. me and my two friends, Libby and Eunice, went and saw it and we were the only ones in our class. And then the next day, Mr. Brill said, who went and saw it? And we raised our hands and he was like, 
yeah, that's what you should be doing. Anyway, so. <laughs> the- <laughs> Teacher's pet. We know who's oh, the Hermione I- in our group. Yeah, absolutely. That is me. She has her hand raised, right? Literally right now. Literally right now, her hand is like up in the air. Me, me, me. I was such a teacher's pet all of school. I really can't imagine. Yeah, that doesn't seem like (laughs) it. But yes, I would like to marry Crazy Heart. And I want to rewatch this movie. It's It's a great one. And I haven't seen it for a while. Sinclair, what would you like to marry? Well... Honestly, I think I'm going to marry Ondine because oh. I liked seafaring Colin. Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought mm-hmm. he was really hot and I really enjoyed the coastal areas of Ireland. They were really nice. breathtaking. I, I mean, maybe I could become a, a lady of the sea for Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, you don't even dip in your toes. Yeah. I think I could become a lady of the sea. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe make this marriage work. All right, Edison. Did you narrow this down, Edison? What Um, film did you want to fuck? You had to narrow it down to one. (laughs) This is this is a tough one because like all of them could be an answer, but um Mm. the answer is Alexander. Oh my god. I I I'm sorry, Togas. All these hot men, the wrestling. Yeah. The, it's just, I'm such a sucker for this costuming. Like, Jesus. His legs, Insane. when he's riding the horse into battle, and they do these, <sighs> like, long shots of, like, him on the horse, and his, like, beautiful, <laughs> like, waxed legs are just Ooh, glistening girl, in sweating. the sun. Lord, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Chinta. Yeah, I was, <sighs> I was dying. Yeah, I know. It's insane. It's totally insane. And also, Alexander the Great was actually bisexual in real life. So, mm-hmm. you know, hmm. that's hot. How about you, Helen? What are you going to fuck? That's hot. Um, I'm going to fucking Bruges. <laughs> Speaking of early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to fucking Bruges. Uh, it was kind of a toss-up, actually, between marrying this. But it doesn't end well. So I'm just going to fuck it. I'm just going to have have my fun within Bruges. Go to Imbruge, have some fun there, and then get out before all the shooting starts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fair. Sinclair? You know what? I think I'm going to fuck the beguiled. Oh, Ooh. that's a good choice. I Well, I did not love this movie, but mm-hmm. it is Southern Gothic with mm-hmm. that hot atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Colin plays a wounded soldier. Mm-hmm. It's actually all very erotic. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to go with the beguiled. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Okay, Edison, you have to kill one. I'm going to kill Daredevil. (laughs) Again with the early 2000s. Honestly, it's just being heinous with the hair situation. Or lack thereof because they shaved him bald and then gave him yet another truly awful and unforgivable goatee. I don't even care about the movie. I'm killing it because of what they did to Colin Farrell. Nope, dead. Dead. Wow. Brutal. Helen, what you going to kill? Oh, you guys, I'm killing widows, obviously. I hate this movie so much. This is a Steve McQueen movie. I saw it at TIFF a couple years ago, and I was just baffled at how bad it was. Some people think it's really good. Uh, I am not one of them. No. (laughs) Sinclair? (laughs) I mean, I truly hated, I truly hated True Detective season two. Mm. But I've already killed that before. I just wanted to shout it out as something that mm, I would like to kill it again, but I won't. (laughs) I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill Horrible Bosses. No, I like that movie. Oh, it's so oh, 
No, I can't. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's okay. That's fine. Not for me. I started it. I I did not like it. I did not finish it. If I kill it, you know, it just won't have any impact on my life whatsoever. Well, so, there's goodbye. a second one, so it's okay. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie To Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. Our website is talkmovietomepodcast.com. And please become a Patreon member. Patreon.com slash talkmovietome. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. I'm Helen. <laughs> I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Thank you for listening. Take care. Ugh. <laughs>